Well, Jonah chapter 1. Let's take a time again to read this chapter. Uh, this will be the last time we're in chapter 1 in any detail. Uh, and this week we'll move on uh, tomorrow night, Lord willing, into the next chapter. But Jonah 1, the word of God comes again. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Then the mariners were afraid, and cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the sea into the ship. Oh, sorry, in the ship into the sea, to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, Every one to his fellow, come, and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? And what is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. And then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. But they could not, for the sea wrought and was tempestuous against them. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord, and said, We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So they took up Jonah, and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's together again seek the face of God, calling for his help and blessing upon this gathering this evening. Eternal God and Father, we look to thee, profoundly aware of our need. We have your word, that sure word of testimony, a, a pure word of God. We thank you, dear Father, again for the confidence we have in the reliability of the Scriptures. We're not doubting, O oh God, its contents. Our burden is that you speak to us through it, that you communicate directly with each and every heart. We do pray for the young people who have just sang. Thank you for them. What a blessing. What a stewardship for this congregation to have such a body of young people to guide and direct in the things of God. Oh, God, work in their hearts tonight. You know what's upon their minds. You know what they intend to do over the next half hour or so. Oh God, shut out every distraction. 
And may they be conscious that they're meeting with thee and thee alone. Work in hearts, we pray tonight. And bless this entire congregation. You, you know every soul. We leave the needs with thee. Give help in the preaching. Give help in human weakness. Give help in the hearing. And again, help us, O God, to seek thy face and to know thee tonight and to know the joy of thy presence. We do pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the third of this series of meetings on the marvelous mercies of God in the book of Jonah. And up to this point, I haven't taken any time to define or explain what I mean by the word mercy. We've just assumed it up to now. I trust you've seen it in illustration already, how this indeed points, this book points us towards the mercy of God. Well, of course, there are various ideas regarding things like mercy and grace. When yet in justice, you, you get various concepts in the Word of God. You know, many people put it this way. When it comes to justice, justice is given to those who deserve it. You think of a criminal, they come before the court and they receive justice. They receive what they deserve. When it comes to grace, well, that's got the idea of someone receiving something of which they are not worthy. An unworthy subject, a gift that is undeserved. Then we think of mercy. We often think of mercy in terms of not receiving what we actually deserve. We deserve the punishment, perhaps, that is our due, but in mercy we are spared from what we deserve. Now, of course, in Jonah, that sense of mercy comes to the fore. The Ninevites clearly deserved the wrath of God. They were a great city whose wickedness was coming up before the Lord. And so in that sense, yes, the mercy has the idea of them not receiving what they deserved. But I want to be clear. We should not have a narrow definition of mercy. That does not do justice to the Old Testament usage of the term. Mercy is broader than simply not receiving what you deserve. Because when mercy is used in the Old Testament, it is often a translation of a Hebrew word that you may well be familiar with. It is the word hesed. It's a terminology often translated by the word kindness or loving kindness that denotes God's covenantal kindness and grace and mercy. It encompasses all of these things of grace and mercy and kindness. It's not just talking about people not receiving what they deserve. This has said of God, this covenantal kindness of God, comes promised by God in the covenant of grace. It is a covenant promise of God to show kindness to those he sets his love upon. It's a covenantal kindness that comes by way of sacrifice secured by the shedding of blood. All covenant promises come sealed by blood shedding. And so this kindness of God is a blood-secured kindness, not just in the New Testament, but also in the New. Now, one thing you should be asking already, you've given this title, The Marvelous Mercies of God in the book of Jonah. Is the word even used in this book? Are you simply boring a theme and inserting it into the portion of Scripture? Well, it is used. It's used in chapter 2 and the verse number 8 in really quite an unusual fashion. Jonah chapter 2, verse number 8, 
As Jonah is praying, and we'll see this tomorrow night in more detail, he's praying, he says this observation, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. And that word mercy at the end of that portion is that word has said, again, that speaks of the covenantal mercies of God. And so it is the reflection of Jonah learning lessons along the way. He understands that those who pursue false gods, they are forsaking their own enjoyment of the mercy of God. The mercy that could be their possession is rejected as they pursue false gods. It's another way of saying there is salvation in no other, no other name given amongst men whereby must be saved. It's another way to say there's only one way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And if you pursue any other way, you forsake the mercy of God. So it's there. Jonah is learning lessons regarding God's mercy. But it's also found over in chapter 4 and the verse number 2. Now here, by now I hope you realize this really is the central text of this book. This text in chapter 4 draws together all the various threads in the narrative. In chapter 4, verse 2, again quoting from the words of God to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, Jonah says, Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I know that thou art a gracious God and merciful, different word there, slow to anger, and here's the word, of great kindness. Children, remember? You've got to look out for the great things in this book. Drawing a thread, a great city, a great storm, a great wind, a great fish. So we all see the greatness of God's mercy, the marvelous mercies of God's. God who is kind in his covenantal promises. And Jonah clearly is a preacher of mercy. We saw that in 2 Kings. He's a preacher of mercy, and yet in his own heart he's struggling to know the application of that mercy. Who really receives mercy? Well, he's got to learn. God is sovereign over mercy, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But as he struggles with this concept in his own mind, God uses another group of people to teach him an important lesson. It's this group recorded in, Mike, uh, in Jonah chapter 1, it is these mariners. It's an old English word. They're sailors. They're men who command, again, the abilities to, to direct and govern the affairs of a boat on the sea. Mariners, sailors, call them what you will. But what is incredible is that this portion, to my mind, records the surprising mercy of God in the salvation of these mariners. The sickness, the sickness, sorry, of events in Jonah 1 brings this runaway prophet into contact with a pluralistic band of pagan mariners. Well, it's a bit harsh. Well, no, it's not. You look what they say again back in verse number 5 of chapter uh, 1. Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God. Chapter 2, verse 8. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. He's a group of individuals observing lying vanities and forsaking the mercy of God, which could be theirs. They're abandoning the only way of salvation, 
found in trusting Jehovah, the living God. And so they are pluralistic. They have this idea there's more than one God and more than one way to those gods. They live in superstition. They live in pagan darkness. And they don't know the true and living God. That is, until the end of chapter 1, where in verse 16 it says, Then, I'm going to draw attention to that word again. Please note that word, then. Then feared, or then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord, and made vows. I think it suggests very strongly that these men are so impacted by the events and the words of Jonah that they come to faith in the one true and living God. These are converts brought to saving faith. Most unexpected converts in most unexpected circumstances. Of course, they're not alone in that regard in the biblical story. He would have thought Rahab would have faith. What about Saul Tarsus or the jailer in Philippi? The Bible's got plenty of accounts of surprising and marvelous conversions. But this one has its own interesting experiences. I think the purpose, by the way, in terms of this book, is to lead the way from Jonah's trouble with the mercy of God through the sea, then onto Nineveh, Little by little, God teaching Jonah that the mercy of God goes beyond the shores of Israel. And he's kind to ungrateful, unthankful men. When God reveals himself to sinners, he brings them to their knees. And they come to fear the Lord, to confess the Lord. The salvation of these mariners, I believe, illustrates the mercies of God. God who saves the unlikely in unlikely ways. Maybe you tonight. You've come here, and it's the very last thing in your mind to seek the Lord. God can change that. You are not too stubborn for God to change your heart tonight. God is able to do surprising things in a meeting like this. So let's examine this account Our present season leads many of us to confess that we feel that people are so hardened in their sins that they'll never come to faith in Christ. You do the doors around this area, and I feel the same in our own locality around, again, western, west of Philadelphia. People seem to so stubborn and so hardened in their sin that they'll never come to faith in Christ. Well, it's good to examine the ways of the Lord. Tonight's message is, is a really poor effort in terms of homiletics. I have two points. The first one's going to take the whole sermon. The last one, very, very brief at the end. So I want to encourage you folks, okay? Two points. You get to the end of the first point. This is never going to finish. It will finish. Okay, second point is brief. But the first point, I want to really discuss the presentation of this transformation. The presentation of this transformation. And then the second point at the very end is going to be the occasion of this transformation. So let's think about the presentation here. How does the Bible present their transformation? Because some wonder, did they really believe? 
Is this not just a case of pagan, superstitious individuals seeing the amazing power of God and responding emotionally? You know, they throw a guy into the sea and everything comes. That's going to do something to you, isn't it? You're, you're going to be, whoa, that's incredible. And so some suggest all you see here is the pagan men essentially adding another god to the already long list of gods they have. They've, they've all of these pagan gods, and now add to that, we're going to add Jehovah. That's the word used in verse number 16, the capitalization, L-O-R-D. They're going to add Jehovah to their list of gods. And so it's an emotional response. Again, I want to be clear. Such is possible. There are many of us in this gathering can think of individuals. And the Lord's presence came in power upon a meeting. A tremendous sense of the solemnity of God's presence under the preaching of the Word of God. And they were very aware of their own mortality and the power and the majesty of God. And they made a profession, I'm going to follow Jehovah. But it was an emotional experience. And they're like those in the two middle soils in the parable of the sower. For a time they respond with joy even, but life's afflictions come. And life's prosperity come, and they fall away. It was a mere emotional response to a powerful experience. But they did not know the root of the matter. And there are some, and they suggest that's what's happening here. This is just an emotional response of people who are moved by a dramatic event. I don't think that's right. I don't think the Bible is written in this way to point us in that direction. I think we're encouraged very clearly by the biblical testimony to see these men as men who have come to fear the Lord, as the text says, not just a little bit, but exceedingly. Now here, I've got to stop. I've got to pause and take some time to consider the most important phrase in this section, and that is, they feared the Lord. You have to understand that. And when you get your mind clear on that subject, I think everything else will fit together clearly. The fear of the Lord. Fear. In our own language, again, it really covers two separate concepts. There is the fear of terror. When we are afraid of something, really usually describing a fear of harm. If we you go somewhere and we confront a, a dangerous situation. We are afraid because we're concerned regarding future harm. That's the fear of terror. The Bible describes that fear of terror when it comes to the fear of God. It does so right at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked and I hid myself. The terrors of God. A recognition of man ashamed before God under the wrath of God for their sin. John Murray says this way. He says this way. He says, it is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid of God. And some of you here 
Have no fear of God. You're like the unconverted in Romans chapter 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A mark of your depravity is that you're not afraid tonight. That's not a good sign. If you're out of Christ, the wrath of God abides upon your head. And to sit here not trembling is a mark of your dead heart. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is right and proper, if you're still in your sin tonight and don't know the mercy of God, it is right and proper for you to be properly afraid. It is the height of impiety not to be so. But the Bible doesn't only describe the fear of God as terror, but also uses the concept of awe or reverence or veneration. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20 to see both of these side by side. Exodus chapter 20. Here, of course, we're going back to Sinai. We're going to the giving of the law on the mount. The Ten Commandments are being given by God on those tables of stone to Moses. And there are tremendous signs from God as he comes upon that mount. Verse number 18. And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. That's the fear of terror. The fear of terror does not draw you to God. It drives you away from God like Adam. I hid because I was afraid. Those who, again, understand something of the terror of God, they begin to skip church. Sometimes the reason why people skip church is because they know what they're going to get when they get to church. They're going to get the presence of God. And the last thing they want to see is the presence of God. These people on the mount, they are terrified of God's presence. And they say to Moses, verse 19, Speak thou with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us. Why? Because they are terrified of harm, lest we die. The fear of terror is a fear of harm that drives us from God. But what does Moses say? Moses says unto the people, verse 20, Fear not, for God has come to prove you. And that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. He's telling the people, do not be terrified of God. God is worthy of your fear. But if you come in the way of obedience, later on in this book, if you come in the way of sacrifice under the blood shedding of a sacrificial lamb, you come that way, you need not fear God. You can approach God through a mediator and you can get into God's presence if you like. But having told the people not to respond in the fear that they've experienced, he says to them, for God has come to prove you, to examine you with the outcome here that his fear may be before your faces. God wants us not to fear so that we will fear. He wants us to come with a righteousness, not our own. To come accepted and beloved. But not that we live carelessly, but that we come to know the fear of God, lest we would sin against God. And so you see, 
There are these two ways in which we can see the terror of God. A terror that is pagan and superstitious, or a fear that is true faith and reverence. So what is it? Jonah chapter 1, we are simply told that they feared the Lord exceedingly. Which is it? Could be either, but it's not. One of the strong clues, and we're going to see more evidence of this, is the use of the word, the fear of God, in chapter 1, verse 9 of Jonah. Again, don't miss the connection of this. When they're examining, these mariners are examining Jonah, and they say, who are you, who are your people, what are you doing here? He says to them, I'm an Hebrew. What do you say next? And I fear the Lord. That's the first usage of the fear of God in this context, and it's being used by Jonah to define who he is. Oh, we live in days when people are crazy about identity. What is your identity? Well, what makes you who you are? Well, for a Hebrew, a true Hebrew, a true Israelite, a true son or daughter of Abraham, they're going to identify themselves and say, my identity is I'm a fearer of God's. It's the very essence of true religion, both Old and New Testament, by the way, to be a God-fearer. And of course, we see that in portions like Proverbs chapter 9, verse number 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The primary chief part of wisdom is to fear God. It's foundational to a saving faith and knowledge of God. You think of Psalm 40, he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto your God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. It's this fear of God that doesn't drive us from God, but moves us to know more about God and to trust in him. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him. And how is that defined? In those that hope in his mercy. You see, you're not a hoper in God's mercy if you don't fear God. These things come together, fear and faith. Reverence, veneration of God, along with a trusting in the ways of God. You see, you see an insight into Old Testament faith in the account of Cornelius. He is one that feared God with all his house. Now, please turn back to Jeremiah chapter 32. Because here, and again... Pardon the length of this material, but I want you to understand here that we're looking that those who observe vain vanities, they're abandoning their own mercy. But they come to fear the Lord. So somewhere in the Bible, there should be a connection between the mercy of God and the fear of God. That should come together. And it does here in Jeremiah chapter 32. This is part, again, of the extended portion in Jeremiah's prophecy regarding the new covenant. Chapter 31, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Part of that covenant is their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. But in that language of the new covenant, Jeremiah 32 and the verse number 30, it says this, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them 
that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I'll put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. You see, it was God's will for his people to fear him. Exodus chapter 20. Fear not, but that God's fears before your faces. That's the will of God. But as you know, in the Old Testament, the people of God determined their soul to rebel against God. And so the promises of the new covenant come, and God is securing his will in the lives of those under his covenant. And he secures his will in their lives by granting them a new heart and a new spirit. It's the rebirth. But what does the rebirth do? The rebirth produces fear of God. And so part of God's chesed, part of God's covenantal mercy is to create fear in the hearts of those who come to him. Not terror, but a reverent awe and fear of God that would not sin against God. I understand in the Bible there are examples of people fearing God in a sense of terror emotionally, I also know the Samaritans in 2 Kings chapter 17, nations that feared the Lord and served their graven images. I understand those things are there. But there's nothing in Jonah chapter 1 to suggest to us that these mariners knew that false, superstitious, spurious fear of God. Rather, what you see in their lives is a transformation described as fearing the Lord. Remember, folks, first point's long. They knew the fear of God. That's a way to describe how their lives were changed by the power of God. I have no time for those who say they trust in Christ and it makes no difference in their lives. When the Spirit of God comes and works in the soul of a man or woman, their lives are changed and changed forever. There's a radical transformation that takes place in the lives of those who are impacted by the gospel. Those who come to fear the Lord, they are changed and they're changed forever by the mighty power of God. And so it is for these men. And we see, we see evidence of their transformation three ways. We see a transformation in their posture before God. We're going to see change here. Look at verse number 5. In verse 5, they are marked by fear of their circumstances. You see, what you see in this account is a change in their fear itself. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid. They don't have trust or peace. They're they're terrified by their circumstances. Chapter 1, verse 10, then were the men exceedingly afraid. That's the terror of God. Remember what's happened in the previous verse? Jonah said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. And their response is, Our gods don't do this sort of thing. Your God can send this storm. You're a simple prophet of God and your God can do this. And in their pagan superstition, They were terrified of God, and rightly so. But then when you get to verse number 16, it says this. Then 
the man feared the Lord exceedingly. There's a a transformation here. It's different from verse number 10. Verse 10 is describing their terror, but their posture before God has changed. And it says, then, then, now they come to fear the Lord. They've cast Jonah into the sea, and the sea ceased from raging, and they are convinced regarding the power of God. And now they come to fear God in reverent awe. Isn't this the testament of the child of God? If it's not, there's something not quite right. The child of God comes under conviction of sin. Some of you remember those days? I hope you do. Remember the days when you're troubled in your soul and you weren't right with God? You may have been very young, but you still knew that you lied and you still knew you had a bitter spirit towards your parents. Some of you perhaps remember days when your conviction was very, very deep. You knew very well the profound rebellion you had against God, and you came to see the holiness of God. I knew the terror of God's wrath. You knew out of Christ it was a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But the gospel came. You were presented with Christ's work, one who came and lived and died for sinners. Securing a perfect right, just as in peace with God. The wrath of God turned away to his work upon the cross. You, you came to see these things, and a new fear came. You were like the psalmist in Psalm 130. If God would mark iniquities, who can stand? I, I'm terrified to stand before God in judgment, but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Everything's changed. You've come to know the marvelous mercies of God. And the marvelous mercies of God has transformed your fear of God. Before there was terror, but now there is a peaceful reverence of God and a desire not to sin against God. Old and New Testament. The promise of the covenant brings people to this terror of God or from this terror of God the settled peace and reverence for God. John Murray again defies it this way. He says this, this fear of God is the controlling sense of the majesty and holiness of God. Does the fear of God daily impact your life? If this is true religion, then if you have not the fear of God in your life day by day, then you do not possess true religion. Again, I haven't the time to to detail and develop the definitions further, but we're seeing this fear of God even in in 1 Peter. Peter says the church fear God. You see, turn, please, back to Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus 19 is just one of the most interesting ways that the fear of God is defined. It's in this listing of various laws and ordinances. And Leviticus 19, verse 14 says this, Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy gods. I am the Lord. What's being said here? Well, the command is, don't curse the deaf. Why not? They can't hear you. What's harm to doing? Well, that's the point. 
harmful to treat people with such disregard that you can say what you like about them or even seek God's curse upon them, but they cannot hear you. In the same fashion, when it comes to the blind, don't trip up the blind. We we all get that. A blind person walking in the street, you're not going to throw something in their way. That's cruel. It's not loving your neighbor. And so God's word tells us that. Don't curse the deaf. Don't trip up the blind. But thou shalt fear thy God. And the sense is this. Whilst the deaf may not hear your curses, God does. And whilst the blind may not see your stumbling blocks, God does. And therefore, to live in the fear of God is to live in the constant awareness of the all-seeing eye of God. And out of love for God, there is forgiveness that they must be feared. Out of love for God, out of grace, we desire not to sin against God. The God that sees, he sees every part of your mobile telephone. He sees every corner of your computer. He sees your actions when your wife is not present. He sees your heart when your husband leaves and you have a bitter spirit toward him. He sees everything, every corner of our lives, every attitude, every action, and every word. You say, preacher, that's terrifying. Not if you know forgiveness. Rather than being terrifying, it is a controlling sense of the fear of God because you desire to know his smile and not his frown. And the child of God does not live carelessly, but carefully walking in the fear of the Lord. Or as Paul says to Corinthians, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It's a transformation. If you don't care what you do in secret and in private, if you think you can pay fast and loose with God in the secret place, you've forgotten the fear of God. But those who are born again by the Spirit of God, like these mariners, they know the fear of God. A transformation in their posture towards God. A transformation, secondly, in their praying. In verse number five, they're they're desperate. They're desperate in their ignorance They're essentially saying, my God's not hearing. You try your God. You try your God. Let's see if one God will hear us. What a futile experience. They have no assurance of the power and the presence of God. And then you get the verse number 14. Wherefore they, if you like, with one man cried unto the Lord and said, we beseech thee. O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood. They're coming to confess Jehovah as the true and living God. They recognize God's justice now. Before they had no regard for life, now they've come to know that life is precious. They're concerned about their actions. Their actions have consequences. They've come to realize these things. They're like the Thessalonians. They've been turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They recognize God's sovereignty. They say, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. They recognize their account of 
responsibility before God, that sin is real and punishment is real and God is sovereign, God is supreme. But this God who is terrifying can be earnestly approached to seek mercy. What are they asking for here? The mercy of God. They've come to know this God, the God that they were terrified of in verse number 10. They're now approaching this God, entering his presence in prayer. Oh, dear, dear unsaved soul, each and every child of God will stand here and testify a very simple truth. We know we deserve the wrath of God, but in Christ we can boldly approach the throne of grace. They're transformed in their prayers. And thirdly, they're transformed in their practice. Verse number 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. For some reason, commentators, they like to try to deny the obvious. And here they'll look at this verse and they'll say, this sacrifice is just an example that they haven't left their pagan superstitions. You know, pagan gods require sacrifice to be appeased and be satisfied. And so they're they're just simply adding Jehovah to the list of gods and giving a sacrifice to Jehovah. There are some significant problems with that. By this time, the storm has passed. It's gone. To their mind as pagans, a passing storm means that God has ceased being angry. Yeah. How do you appease a pagan God when he's angry? That's when you give the sacrifice. What's also significant is what's happened in the earlier part of the chapter. Chapter 1, verse 5. The mourners were afraid... And cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. What are they going to sacrifice? It's all in the sea. What's happening here? Well, I I think there's a very helpful suggestion. And that is the idea that having abandoned all of their wares, they return back to Israel. And there they offer those sacrifices unto the Lord Jehovah. Now, I understand the difficulty. How did they know to do this? How did they know that was part of what they should do? Well, allow me just a little bit of speculation. Jonah's there. He knows the ways of God. And I wonder, did he tell them a little more than what's recorded here in Jonah chapter 1? I don't know. But I do know what tells what they did. They offered a sacrifice unto the Lord. That's so very, very important. You see, in the Old Testament, there are various forms of sacrifice. Peace offerings, burnt offerings. But there's also the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The concept that having received mercy of God, the child of God then offers sacrifice acknowledging God, yes, having thankfulness of God. Think of Noah and the ark and the sacrifice that follows. A sacrifice acknowledging God. But what's that all about? It's the Lord God telling us 
that everything we have and every grace we enjoy and every blessing we enjoy comes upon the ground of shed blood. That there's no mercy and no grace without blood being shed. And so a thanksgiving sacrifice is acknowledging that the mercies and the blessings of God have come upon the ground of redemption and upon the ground of shed blood. Whatever you think of Jonah chapter 1, the Bible is very, very clear that the mercy of God comes because of the word Christ. That those in the Old Testament look towards the coming Christ and those in the New look back to the cross. But their gaze centers upon the bloodshed of Christ. And the reason that God can spare men, the God who sees and speaks and sends, he can spare men because he spared not his own son. And having spared not his own son, what does he do? He giveth and giveth and giveth, and giveth. He giveth us all things with him. Having given us Christ, he gives us all things, every spiritual blessing enjoyed because of the cross. And so these mariners, they've come to no blessing. The sea has ceased from raging. They've come to the blessing of God, and they give the sacrifice. There's also a change. I might have said three things in their, their change. Well, there's four. There's a change in their purpose. It says also in verse number 16, they may advise. It's about their future, isn't it? The making of vows. I think you can't read that without considering a portion like Psalm 116. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Taking the cup of salvation, delighting in the gospel. To take the cup is to drink its experience, is to enjoy the experience of Christ in your soul. You see, when you're changed, when God saves your heart and you're transformed and come to fear God, it doesn't stop there. The fear of God gives you delight in the gospel and you pay your vows. You come to worship God. You come to call upon the Lord in the presence of his people. That's what's happening here. They've been born again. They've come to fear the Lord. And they now, having feared the Lord and growing in the knowledge of God, they want to live their lives for the glory and honor of God. What a wonderful change in their lives have been wrought when Jesus came into their heart. The changing power of the gospel. Publicly confessing the Lord as God and publicly worshiping and giving thanks to God. Do you fear the Lord tonight? Could you say that describes your Christian experience? I'm not ignoring the fact that we love the Lord and rejoice in the Lord. I'm not ignoring those things. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is no true religion without the fear of God. That is the presentation of their transformation. Secondly, very briefly, the occasion of their transformation. Two things. This transformation was marked by sovereign organization, providentially arranged. 
Again, allow me just to speculate for a second or two. I wonder when the storms come down and the winds are raging and the lot falls on Jonah and they say to Jonah, why are we here? And he says, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I wonder do they say to themselves, of all the days, of all the passengers, we got this guy. I don't know. But it's true. Of all the days, of all the boats, of all the prophets, they come to meet a runaway prophet called Jonah. It is a marvelous display of the mercy of God in sovereignly organizing the affairs of life to bring a group of men to faith in Jehovah. God made his arrangement that his prophet was in that boat on that very day. Some of you suspect of unsaved loved ones. You think of them as mariners on a distant sea or as prodigals in a far country. And you think to yourself, there's no hope. They've turned their back on the gospel. There's no way they'll ever come to know the Lord. God is able to send a wayward runaway prophet into their boat at just the right time for them to come to faith in Christ. That's what God delights to do. I had the joy of preaching at LTBS on Thursday night, and I preached in the two parables in Matthew 13. You know the Pearl of Great Price parable? The merchants looking for that pearl of great price, finds it, sells all that he has to buy it. But in the previous parable that's so like it, there's a man that finds treasure in a field. And when he finds it, he hides the treasure and he sells all he has and, and he goes and buys it. They're, they're so alike, you wonder, why are there two? They're, they're saying the same thing. Someone finds treasure... They sell all to get the treasure. But there's a difference. You see, the practice in the ancient days, before banks, was to put treasure in jars and hide that treasure in a field known only to the owner of the treasure. But then sometimes the owner of the treasure died unexpectedly. And the farmer's coming along and they're tilling the ground and buying, they hit something under the ground and they find a jar of treasure. You see the difference? The merchant is looking, and by God's grace, there are some in this church and elsewhere, and they're seeking to know the Lord. They want to know the Lord, and you know what? If they seek with all their heart, they're going to find the Lord. But there's also those like the farmer in the field, and bang! Out of nowhere, they run into Christ unexpectedly, without any deliberate purpose and they come to see one who is more valuable than everything else and they come to realize that Christ is precious maybe that's you tonight you've been going your own way running your own direction and now you're confronted with a God who is terrifying and yet a God who is welcoming and invites sinners to come to him and no mercy and you've been faced 
with Christ. Are you willing to sell all you have? Give up all your pride and ambitions. Give up on every simple desire and say, I have found him whom my soul loveth, and I found him, I will not let him go. This is a God of surprising conversions. This conversion, again, is sovereignly organized. It also comes by supernatural revelation. These men have come to know the Lord. They've heard the words, I believe, of Jonah, and they've seen the power of God manifested. And that's still the same for lost souls. But now it's in the Bible. And in the Word of God, we see the power of God manifest, particularly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not in the stilling of a storm, but in the stilling of the wrath of God. As Christ bore our sins and his body to the tree, and the darkness ascended, and the Lord said, It is finished. And he goes to the grave and then rises the third day in the power of God. There is no doubt he is alive. He is not in the grave. He is not here, for he is risen. And there's the evidence of the power and the majesty of God in the Scriptures. And through the Word of God, we're confronted with God. And then invited, come unto me. All you that weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The God who strikes terror into our souls invites us to put our trust in his precious son. Same things, sovereignly organized through supernatural revelation that you, dear sinner tonight, could come to know the marvelous mercies of God. Let's pray. Eternal God and Father, we come before Thee again in Christ's name. We're so thankful, Lord, that You can change the heart of man. In and of ourselves, no minister, no parent can change the heart of a loved one or a friend or a neighbor. But Thou art the Almighty God, and Thou art able to change. We pray you do a work in some soul tonight. Cause them to see, O Lord, your awesome power. Cause them, O God, to fear thee. And then to run, to run, to get to Christ, to come behold the wonderful, wondrous mystery. O Lord God, save, we pray tonight. And we'll give thee all the praise and all of the glory as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.